It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Like when you came to my ring or you met with me, you felt there was a good chance that you were safe in good hands. I didn't. I was a very low profile dude. So like, you don't want to deal with anybody that has heat on them. And I didn't have any heat. I was a ghost. What's up, everybody? Today's guest is a man named Eric Kenori. He's got a book out called Pressure, and it's all about his life as a pot smuggler from upstate New York. My childhood was way harder than prison. This guy started out as an ordinary college kid, just like me. He's actually like a guy I would have looked up to, who I would have wanted to be back in the day. He started out nickel and diamond, and before you know it, in 2004, he blew up. It started from the taste of freedom. When I had an extra 40 bucks in my pocket, that's freedom. And then it went from 40 to 60 to like just stacks that you can't fit in your pocket anymore. He started moving thousands and thousands of pounds of Canadian bud across the border into his little hometown of Saratoga Springs, New York, and he became a millionaire many, many times over. Eventually, I got up to the point where I was doing 50, 60 million a year in sales. This guy moved thousands of pounds a month to different organizations all along the eastern seaboard. I had an account in every single state on the east coast between New Orleans and Boston. He was the man, and he never used violence. He ran a whole organization and never even touched a gun. He was a real business-minded kind of dude. I was still in the game, but I always told myself I wasn't in the game. When I went to bed at night, I was a little waterfall pond boy. You probably never heard of this guy, and that's on purpose. That's how Eric would have wanted it. Even the guys who worked for him didn't know his real name or his identity. I had no heat because I didn't talk to anybody. I never said I was the boss. I said, if somebody placed an order for 500 pounds, I said, I'll have to get back to you and check. I already had it in inventory. It wasn't flashy either. He would take his money and he would buy gold bars and bury them in the backyard, which eventually he ended up having to turn over to the feds in a deal that basically bought him his freedom. They came, pick me up in shackles. They go, all right, where are we going? I go, you're gonna need a shovel. Go, we're going to dig up some gold. He did a couple of years in prison, but he kept it airtight, didn't have to rat on anybody. He got out, he turned his life around, and he wrote a book about it. And that's what he's here to talk about today. I did a little less than two years, but that was a good thing for me because that gave me time to really work on myself. Give it up for this guy, a personal hero of mine, in just an hour and a half of talking to him. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Canori, you're watching The Connect with Johnny Mitchell. That was all my life was, bro. You know, I, I had, the money came so fast at a young age, bro, that I my identity was based on the money I made rather than the person I was. I still hadn't really grown up. I was still just a little boy. That's when I see the lights behind me start to flash. And I didn't even think, I just hit it. I was driving like my life depended on it. Then I parked the car, hopped out, closed the door, and I started running. And he pulls out a burner, shanks, like six inches. And then he passes it to me. And he goes, here, that's yours. Don't ever leave the cell block without this. He was the reason I made it out of that place alive. So where are you from? Where am I from? I'm from upstate New York. What part of upstate? Between Saratoga Springs and Lake George, a little town called Queensbury. Wow. That's a different life up there. 
Well, how do you know it's a different life? You never heard of it. I mean, I've watched what's a uh, show, Escape from Danamora. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's just, I mean, the people up there are like a different species. It really. They're behind. They're like they're 10, behind. They're, they're 10 years behind what's going on in the major metropolitan areas. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It's like, they're like Northern Hicks. Eh, I don't want to say, I guess I know people up there. I'm not going to say anything about them, but I mean, look, we're not talking about your aunt Kathy. We're, we're saying in general, we're talking about people from upstate, but this is important because you know, you're, you're essentially, you're, you're not even a suburban kid. You grew up rural. Was that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I'm a rural kid. Yeah. I, you know, my parents took me for a drive to the Big Apple when I was a kid. And my head was bobbing around in the back seat, <laughs> looking at all the people from different parts of the world. Like, yeah. what the f- going on? Yeah. So yeah. I had a little exposure when I saw the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, I sat on buses a long time for visitation rights. I'd take buses and trains at a very young age to mm-hmm. see my father. Uh, so I was so exposed. Your, so your father to other- was your father was locked up. No, 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 no. My fa- my parents divorced when oh. I was two, and I lived I lived six years away, six hours away from him. So, uh, what did the, what did your parents do? Uh, my father worked at a juvenile detention center, counselor, and my mom. I don't think she really worked. It was it was always odd. She always pushed me to get a good career, but she never really worked. Mm. Funny, funny how that stuff works, right? Yeah. Well, I guess your dad was probably paying for it. She probably exactly probably child support. The- yep, child support. What did were you? So you were lower middle class. Uh, lower middle, exactly. Lower middle class. The pro, but me, my mom and stepfather and dad were lower middle class or middle class. But me, I felt like I was low class because my mom didn't give me much. Mm. Uh, my sneakers were off the clearance rack. I had the shoes and the stuff from the discount stores you know it's very difficult to fit in with the cool kids when you have nothing cool to talk about sure wasn't really allowed to play sports didn't have any nice things where people would say nice jacket didn't uh i felt insufficient inadequate shy quiet yeah 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 so you retreated into yourself sounds like a lot of time being grounded Listening to my mom party downstairs. She was a big drinker. They partied hard. Mm. Rage, you know, Friday to Sunday. Start with the vodka on Friday and end Sunday with the Bloody Marys. And, uh, you know, Monday through Wednesday's aspirin, right? Yeah. So it's a real roller coaster environment that I was in. You know, it was like dancing, laughing three days. And then the other three to four days is yelling. Yeah. That was a traumatic, unstable, unsafe environment for me. And so, and you would be grounded upstairs. I'd be sitting in my bedroom, listening to these adult parties going on, just tinkering around with things, playing Monopoly by myself on my carpet in my bedroom, looking out the window at the birds playing puddles, wondering (laughs) what the temperature is. No joke. This is a real deal. Let me tell you, my childhood was way harder than prison. Mm -hmm. There's not even a doubt about it. Mm -hmm. Like I was built for prison. I knew I'd eventually go to prison. Mm -hmm. You know, that's my, it was a calculated risk by me breaking the Mm -hmm. law. Did you want to be rich when you were a kid? Did you have uh, material aspirations or what did you want to uh, yeah, be? Yeah. What did you want I, I to liked, become? I, I used to spend a lot of time watching the show Miami Vice as a kid. How old so, were you? It's probably late, 80, late 80s, early 90s. I'd sneak into my mom's bedroom and watch her VHS tapes of uh, my Don Johnson chasing the oh, bad Oh, okay. Guy. Gotcha. I was like, <laughs> wow, you're really aging well for watching a show that premiered I'm in the 70s. I'm 44 now. You're you're 44 years yeah, old. Yeah, how do I old? How do wow. I Wow. How old do I look? I thought you were my age, 37, 38. Uh, I don't eat refined sugar. It keeps you young. Yeah, that's the move, right? Yeah, that's sugar will age you. Ooh, you did not like prison then. Oh yeah, the food five, dude. I was skinny, frail. I 
is a mess. All I mean, it is there is sugar. Have you seen, watch an inmate put sugar in his tea or on his, I mean, they're putting sugar on their hamburgers, dude. Those guys are like, I mean, that was their, if you couldn't do meth or crack, like that's, that's what it was, was refined sugar. That was your high. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I stayed away. Listen, my time was short. So it's kind of like, I just spent time reading books, push-ups, sit-ups mm -hmm. like that. Like yeah. I was, I didn't really need to, I didn't settle in too much into mm -hmm. the groove. So you were, you're 44. So that means you're a nineties kid through and through. You're born in the early eighties, uh, late seventies. And so you're coming of age at a time of angst and, uh, I don't know. How did things progress? You're hearing your mom, your alcoholic mother, uh, you know, punishing you for no reason, neglecting you. Is that fair to say a little bit? Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, when did you step out of the house? When did you start to, you know, I would, I would have tried to escape in my early teens, but she would always just say, good luck, make it on your own. Nobody else is going to take you. And then when I'd be running down the street at night, or after school and I don't want to come home, there's only so many hours you can stay out there alone before the sun goes down. You get cold, you get goosebumps, and you're like, I need a place to sleep and eat. <laughs> and that, that was real deal situation. That was the fuel, bro. My, like my hustle wasn't about getting the new rims. My hustle started about food and shelter. So you were trying to get away from your mother. That was your first Yeah, mind. freedom. And my, my stepfather was a very abusive situation. He's a big dude. He's Six five, two hundred and twenty pounds, young in his thirties. You know, that's that's like you don't want to say anything wrong. You, you it's walking on eggshells, bro. Yeah, that's what it was, and it was. You, I learned through trial and error at a very young age. Yeah, so it sounds like a pretty empty, lonely childhood. Exactly. Did he ever your stepfather ever put his hands on you? Oh yeah, dude. Sexually? Uh, not sexually, but I'm talking about like, bro, like. Bro, I mean, I, I fucking, dude, yeah. I got I got hammered on if I did, if I said anything wrong, talking back in my household was literally just talking back, asking a question that I already asked before. Yeah. Like, he was very sensitive, bro. And so it's he like, would, like, tune you up, like, smack you upside oh, yeah, the head? Yeah, dude, or? it's all in the book, bro. I go deep into the, something. well, not too deep, but there's certain shit, bro. Like, I've been in positions where I sat in a freaking bathroom of an RV for, a day, you know, the blue water swirling in the mm -hmm. toilets, not being able to see just sat in there as we drove my grandmother's RV to Florida, like down the I-95. And this is, you don't even have a Game Boy. You don't have, there's no, no cell dude, phones. No there's Game nothing. Boy. They bought a Nintendo maybe in like 91, but I didn't get to play. It was for my stepfather. I remember I played Duck Hunt maybe twice in my life. <sighs> Poor thing, dude. Duck Bro. Hunt was the, no Street Fighter. Dude, I didn't even know what the name of Street Fighter was. If somebody I said, hey, Eric, you want to play Street Fighter after school? I would just have to look the other way because I didn't even know what it was. Wow. What did so your mind would just go? All you had to rely on was your mind. You were literally in prison. Oh, yeah, I was in my it, it wasn't about high fives and friends. My life was about survival plotting and figuring out how to get into that environment into a place where I could smile like the other kids. Wow. What's up guys. Let's take a minute to thank our sponsor for today's episode. HelloFresh. You guys, if you're looking to eat healthy this summer, but you don't have a lot of time, you got to go over to HelloFresh. Listen, I, my life is a mess. I'm a workaholic. All I do is work my butt off to bring you guys this content. I don't have time 
to clean my apartment, much less prepare three meals a day. What are you, nuts? That's why I love HelloFresh, okay? HelloFresh delivers food to your door fast, delicious, healthy, and easy, and it's 25% cheaper than takeout. That is a fact, okay? Uh, You can get pre-portioned ingredients, help cut down on food waste, while step-by-step instructions make cooking a breeze, not a chore. Make your home the hangout place this summer with crowd-pleasing eats. From a backyard bratwurst bar to tangy key lime pie, HelloFresh Market makes summer entertaining a cinch. You guys, when you need dinner fast, don't call for delivery. Think HelloFresh. They'll deliver you meals that you can prepare in 15 minutes, okay? This is a meal delivery service. It's wonderful, okay? And again, it's cheaper. I know that you want to run out and get takeout food when you're hungry and there's nothing in the house. That's why you signed up for HelloFresh. It's better for you and it saves you money, okay? There's nothing to think about. Go use HelloFresh right now and check this out, you guys. Go to HelloFresh.com slash connect50. That's connect, C-O-N-N-E-C-T-5-0. Use the promo code connect50 for 50% off plus free shipping. Once again, go to HelloFresh.com and use the promo code connect50 to get 50% off Plus free shipping, you guys. This is an unbeatable value. And I'm telling you, it's just the best thing you can do for yourself uh, as well as us because they support the show. So support them. Let's get back into the episode. When did you, did you experiment with marijuana or anything before you actually got into dealing? Like when did you I get started, I started dealing candy in like fifth, sixth grade. And then, and then I tasted weed in ninth, 10th grade Mm -hmm. and smoking weed for me was, it actually made me laugh and loosen up a little bit so I could actually hang out with kids. Cause I didn't, I didn't hang out with the kids that played sports because I wasn't allowed to play sports. So eventually I snuck out here and there, I'd get a little window to go out and I'd be hanging out with the potheads. Right. Yeah. So when I smoked weed, it helped me escape my reality because I could laugh off. If somebody asked me a real question, Hey, did you hook up with that chick? Or, Hey, what do you think? Or I could just laugh it off. I had no experience with them and I didn't know what I was doing. I, I, I think I once played spin the bottle and I didn't use my tongue and people made fun of me. Cause I didn't know you were supposed to use your tongue, bro. <laughs> yeah. I, in the movies, they didn't show the tongue. They just yeah. show like the mouth. Yeah. Going over. Movie so, kisses. Yeah. So you know, I was just a sheltered child, man. But the weed, let me tell you what the weed covered some of my insecurities Mm -hmm. because you can laugh about a bunch of stuff that you don't even know what's going on. Mm -hmm. At least that's how weed affected me when I was a young kid. It was very euphoric and like Mm -hmm. tantalizing. Mm -hmm. When did you get into dealing? I started dealing in about 10th, 11th grade, small scale, dime bags, eights, just enough to get free weed and a free piece of pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Was that also part of your identity? Did you like, you know, saying like, yeah, I'm, I'm the guy that has it. I think secretly there was a part of me where I felt accepted and needed. Mm-hmm. Like there's, I had some value in the world, right? Yeah. Somebody's coming to me for something rather than never being noticed. Mm-hmm. What were you like buying? Were you like picking up like an ounce? Like, did yeah, you first time I bought something was a half ounce and I moved up to an ounce, but in high school, I really wasn't buying more than an ounce. Maybe by senior year, I bought a quarter pound, but it was really small scale stuff because, uh, First off, I was quiet about it. I wasn't selling to everybody mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't have a ton of money. Eventually I built my bankroll up to 500 bucks, but that took a few years. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it was back in the day. You're, you're dealing with like small, small micro scale economics. But, but it was nice. You get an extra 30, 50 bucks a week. 
That was huge. That's, that's beer. And back yeah. then, a 12 pack of Milwaukee's best is four ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can get a 12 pack free weed and hit up a drive through like Wendy's or something. Right. Right. That, that's a baller day right there. Did your mom ever catch you with the sack? Did she ever go in your uh, room and find the stash? Oh, at some point, uh, probably a year or two in it, she suspected things with the red eyes, the, you know, the stench of the grass. And, uh, but I was pretty good. I learned, I really learned how to hide things because mm-hmm. my mom was smart, bro. She would raid my room and go through the garbage. She would look at the little garbage can next to my desk and see what was in there or like wrappers or any type of scribbling or writing. So she was on me like white on rice. So she was neglectful, uh, abusive, yet strict. Exactly. Why, why would she care about what you were doing? If she didn't even care to raise you and give you, help you develop a personality, why would she care that you were using marijuana and dealing mm. it? She, she, her parents escaped World War II. They came in from Poland, fresh off the boat. Jews? Uh, no, Polish. Okay, interesting. And they came... And, they didn't uh, really escape. They just yeah. They 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 left. They were in the through. they were in the they were in the military over there, right. and they they got out and they came to the U.S. And my mom has a very military mindset. Like, save. You have to, her parents used to hide in basements, shelter from bombings and things yeah. like that. Run from basement to basement. So it was a very it was. She has a military mindset. Save, plan for the future. But she doesn't know how to make any money, and she likes to party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Polish Polacks drinkers yeah, dance. Dance and booze every weekend. So, because I imagine if she found you, I mean, what would she do? You're getting grounded for everything. Like, was she losing control? Was she still strict when you were in high school? Or it sounds like by the time I reached 12th grade, things lightened up because there was some light on the horizon where she knew I was accepted into a a Plattsburgh, into a state college, a four year degree. And she was like, oh, that really made her day. She's, you know, her, her first child makes it into is accepted into college. My mom was raised that education is everything. You go and get a degree and then you get out of college and you find a job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, I, uh, my parents were the same way. I mean, I think that's the boomer mindset is that, you know, you, you start with a company after you go to college, you save, you buy a house, you out a couple of kids and then you rest up and then you die. Right. Uh, how do you, What's your relationship with your mom like now? Have you forgiven her? It's been the hard. I wrestled with that, bro. You know, and I don't really do drugs anymore, but I still play with psychedelics here and there mm-hmm. just because it helps heal me. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes I have to do those things just to tune me up, like maybe ayahuasca or something, and I'll sit in one of these ceremonies and I'll just melt out. And the one thing that always comes back to me, it's my mother. There's nobody that you're really closer to, right? You're connected by the umbilical cord at one point. And I don't have a connection with her for various, for other reasons that I want to get into business. Like they, I, they took some things from me. It was just a. Is she living now? Yeah, she's alive. I just, I don't talk to her. I haven't, I haven't really talked to her in a few years. Does she understand what she did? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think so because she still will drink on the weekends and smoke a cigarette. Like when somebody's smoking a cigarette and trying to talk to me, I don't know if they hear me. Like, what are you sucking on? Like, what what are you doing? Like, I don't understand that. Right. Yeah. Listen, I smoked some cigarettes in high school because I thought it was cool. Right. Like, I think I were playing Jim Morrison in the woods and I got a fucking (laughs) cigarette hanging out a joint here, funneling beers. Like for me, uh, pumping all these things into me, I look like I think I'm a rock star. But 
as an older kid, I'm like, what are you, what are you sucking on right now? Like I'm trying to have a conversation with you. Mm. So I don't think she could, but here's the deal, bro. It's my own mom. I'm sure she doesn't wish any pain upon me. She only wants the best for me, mm. but she only understands life from her perspective. Mm. As that's how we all are. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I know they did what they could. Well, yeah, that's kind of the relationship on a very, very reduced scale. That was the relationship I had with my father. So I think a lot of my uh, predispositions to criminality were exacerbated by this relationship I had with my dad who, you know, I was lying to him and he was overly harsh, but didn't teach me anything, you know? So I, I, I relate to this. Mm -hmm. Um, but tell us, tell us how you went from just like I went, you know, and every, you know, white pot dealer back then went from, you know, selling dime bags and just being a knucklehead to turning it into a business. How did that start? It started from the taste of freedom. When I had an extra 40 bucks in my pocket or 50 or 60, that's freedom. Mm -hmm. You can walk out the door and do whatever you want. And that's a really good feeling. And then it went from 40 to 60 to like just stacks that you can't fit in your pocket anymore. Mm -hmm. And it feels good to be able to buy people drinks and dinner and people, some people want you for something. What was, what was the, but we want to know that story. How did you go from $40 to millions of dollars? Was it college? Is that what uh, it ramped college, up? I started ramping up in college. I was doing, I was doing anywhere from 50 to a hundred thousand a month in college by the time wow. I graduated in, in total sales. Not, we're not talking revenue profit. profit. We're, not, we're not talking right. about profit. Uh, but what you're turning over is still yeah, a lot I was of still, weight. I was turning over easily a hundred grand a month. Of and work. You, yeah, this was Plattsburgh State. Plattsburgh State, and the feds actually did have a couple kids wear wires on me my last year. Wow! But they, I knew they were wearing wires, and I, I created some false information on the wire to get them off me because I was still small time back then. They didn't really for feds for the feds to watch you. It's expensive. Totally. You got to be moving some serious weight to make it worth it. Yeah, right. to make it worth it. So they kind of just sent a couple kids with wires, just seeing what they could get. Yeah. Okay. So, and what year are you in college? Like the 90, 97 to 2001. Okay. Okay. So what, what is the weed at this point in upstate New York on the East coast? Is this Canadian bud? Yeah. Yeah. Canadian. So back then in the late nineties, there weren't all these names. It was called kind bud. Kind bud. Right. Remember it's KBs, like, dude. You, know, you got the yeah. kind bud or yeah. you got the Mersh. What's a Mersh? Commercial, like Mexican, right. Colombian, Jamaican. Right. Okay. So, and that was like the, the, the garbage. The low ends. So right. You the got low the low end ends and the high ends. And, and, and so KBs were the high ends. Yeah. Back they were, then. You didn't know. There were no strain names back then. Totally. Unless, right. Like, it was just kind, bud. And, uh, and who was, who was the big time? Who were the people like bringing it in? Did you know like the kingpins, the people that were actually getting I it wouldn't from call Canada? Them king back. Listen, I wasn't, listen, I was doing max $60,000 deals back then around age 20, 21. Yeah. Um, but, but that's, uh, but that's what, well, that's at least uh 30 pounds. Yeah. Right? yeah 20, 30, depending yeah, on what it yeah. is. It's a but, lot of weight. Yeah. So you want to know how I grew it, man, as I always kept my word under promise and over deliver mm -hmm. simple things that you don't learn in a college course is show up on time. Mm. You're going to be there on Friday, deliver, be there on Friday. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you're ramping up your business, who are you picking up from? 
Oh, that was my key to my success is right. I had four or five suppliers. Right. And then I would get bidding wars amongst them. Right. So okay. Whoever can get me the lowest price. And then I had multiple. And this is all on KBs, kind bud? Yeah. And then I had multiple distributors. You know, when I first came to the college, it was competitive because it was close to the Canadian border. Everybody had weed. But eventually I kept my margins so low mm -hmm. that I was able to really knock out a lot of the competition where the competition eventually started working and distributing for me. Right, right. Which was nice because I treated them fairly. I wasn't making a ton. I would make five, 10, sometimes 15% on my deals. Yeah. But yeah. I, was, I was starting to get the volume going. Mm -hmm. So that was more important. That's exactly how I thought. Because I went to school in Eugene, Oregon, and it was flooded because... It's right. It's two hours from Southern Oregon and Northern California, the Golden Triangle. So all of the outdoor bud that gets harvested, one of the first stops when it goes up north is Eugene. So I, the way I just, my first thought at the beginning was I just need clientele. I don't care if I only make $50 off a pound. I just want it moving. Yeah. You know what I mean? So then how did you go from, how did you go from taking all the clientele to increasing your profit margin? Yeah. Well, I mean, you just learn through trial and error with that as well. People say, oh, it's too expensive mm -hmm. and they walk away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The next time they come back, you're going to lower it a little. And who were the people dealing for you? Were they just other students? Other, other college students, people in different territories. I'd have somebody yeah. closer to downtown, somebody on campus, somebody uptown. And it was there logistically, everybody was, the students could walk to those spots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was like, I didn't put two of the same customers in the same territory. Yeah. So they'd be competing against each right, other. Right. Right. And how many pounds were you moving at 2021 20, now? How many pounds in college, a week? I was probably on campus and within the town, only 10 pounds a week, but then I'd probably send another 20 pounds out of town. Yeah, sure. Sure. Okay. Wow. And how did you increase your profit margin? So you've got all the Volume. clients now. There was no, the margin never increased. It always stayed. So what do you five, 10, 15%. What are you buying a pound for? How many at a time? And, and then there, there, there's indoor, which is expensive, mm -hmm. around maybe three grand. Mm -hmm. And there's outdoor, which is around two grand. And keep in mind, I'm a little kid, so somebody's making a lot of money off me back mm -hmm. then. I didn't, I wasn't too. A lot of those guys above me took advantage of the fact that I would work 100 hours a week. Sure. And they, sure. I, they made money, but they also wanted to keep me around. So eventually they lowered their prices. So are, and are these guys that are distributing KBs coming straight from Canada? Uh, one thing is I always kept myself insulated from the border. So the reason I paid a little more is because I would send somebody up to go meet their connect. I never actually, there are very few times where I bought people out and say, hey, I want your connect. Mm-hmm. Because then I'm getting closer to some type of potential investigation. Mm -hmm. The bigger up you get, there's a bigger chance that you have some heat on you. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like to be near the heat. I would never drive a car to somebody's. If I'm going to meet a new connect, I would park my car, you know, a few thousand yards away and walk. So my license plate wouldn't show up at that house in case there's any surveillance there. Um, and back then, bro, it was so much easier to break the law. There weren't cameras around, ring doorbells. Totally. Like, it was just, there weren't cell phones. You couldn't mm. be tracked. Everything I did was on a payphone and beepers. Wow. It's unreal. It's yeah. unreal. That was yeah. good, good. The last generation in human history to operate like that. Yeah. Um, so, but eventually, you did get that close to the sun. You did start, you know, bringing it in uh, over the border. How did that escalate? It started with uh, 
boats, boats, snowmobiles. Like there was, there's one connect I had that had a boat that could do 80, 80 plus miles per hour in under a foot of, uh, in uh, water that's only a foot deep. Mm-hmm. Like once he got on plane, so the, the border patrol boats couldn't go in that shell of water at that speed. Right. So if he, if border patrol saw him for some reason out in the main river, they weren't, they could, they could try to chase him, but they couldn't get all the way into shore. Okay. And these gotcha. guys are doing this at night, doing 80, a hundred miles an hour across the river. Okay. So tell us about this North, this Canadian Northern New York smuggling. Cause Americans know all about smuggling at the Southern border, how the Colombians used to bring it up to Florida. Who, who are the, the people? Why was KB's such a staple of, is it Quebec that's north of, uh, or, or is it Ontario? Quebec. Quebec. Okay. So why, why did they have the KBs? Well, there's, they, I haven't heard the term KB in a while, but, uh, why was it that they grew I, so much? Listen, bud? Quebec has actually a lower quality bud as Vancouver rather than Vancouver. Vancouver was a higher end bud, but I didn't really, wasn't connected there yet at this time. Quebec was a lower end product for indoor hydroponically mass produced by the Asians. Gotcha. Tyrads. Yeah. Uh, now how, how does that get down? Who brings it over the border? There's the Indians. Mm-hmm. There's the bikers. Mm-hmm. Hell's Those angels, are, right? Hell's angels. Oh, I don't usually talk about this shit. I don't want to put myself, but I mean, this is the show, Eric. <laughs> I, I, I never said the hell's angels. It could be any biker group. Yeah. Right. You know, I'm not going to point fingers and say who's, so here's the deal. It gets into the U S but then there's other ways. There's also 18 wheelers. There's lumber trucks that mm-hmm. can come in. You can mm-hmm. get a lumber truck and stash a thousand pounds in the center of it, right through the border. Mm-hmm. You can also know a border patrol agent. Mm-hmm. So there's countless ways to get it over the border. You can also be small time and just throw 50 pounds in a backpack on a snowmobile that does hundred miles an hour and just gun it at 3 a.m. And it's so remote up in that region. Yeah. It's so remote. It's very remote. The patrol is, they know what's going on though, dude. Like, let's say you wanted to move a thousand pounds over the border up there. You might have somebody tip off the cops about another load at the time you want to move that about a 50 pound load. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're all their attentions on the 50 pound load. And then you get the thousand pound load in. Did you ever move like that? Uh, I wasn't in charge of crossing the border, but I knew my, my role was distribution in the U S mm-hmm. I didn't, I tried to stay within a hundred miles. I should say at least a hundred miles away from the border as I got bigger. Mm-hmm. I didn't want my sh- face showing up anywhere near the border. Mm-hmm. Too much heat up there. But would you actually set up like at your height? Would you go up to Canada, meet with the actual growers and then, you know, the set growers, up the deals. But the bosses, maybe once a year, I'd go and meet somebody and show my face and get up. I'd have somebody drive me up. I okay. Would, okay. Gregory, tell us about this. How did you, because meeting the connect up there had to have been like when I met the Mexican growers in Northern California, that was like, that was, that mean that meant you made it because you couldn't just meet those guys back then. You couldn't just Google search those motherfuckers. So how did you first meet the connect up in Canada? Like I said, it wasn't one connect. I had, I went through 10 connects up through there, right? Maybe nine, eight, but. So how do you, uh, get, how did how I, how do you get plugged you, in? You work with one for a while and then you realize you're paying too much. And at some point somebody says, Hey, you got to meet my connect. Mm. And why are they going to introduce me to their connect? Because they're not doing anything. Any, they don't have, they're not moving any weight. Like 
I had a constant flow. I'm moving thousands and thousands of pounds and a month. Well, it depends what year we're talking. I mean, we're not right out of college, but eventually I got up to the point where I was doing 50, 60 million a year in sales. So how many pounds is that? Uh, depends if it's indoor or outdoor, but you're looking anywhere around 2000 pounds a month. Maybe that's more, incredible. maybe more, a ton, a ton a month. Yeah. This you is, know? so that's the equivalent of moving. If you're moving stuff out of the Southern border, out of Canada, it's, uh, it's 10 times the price, right? 10 times. So you're looking at, if I'm moving, let's say I'm moving 6 million a month, 5 million a month. Let's say I'm moving 5 million a month. I could get 10 times the amount of weed for 5 million at the Southern border, but I didn't mess with that stuff. It's a lower end product, but no, still gets, it still gets you high. But so my volume in terms of pounds, it wasn't super high. It's well, just it's the dollar amount. The dollar amount. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it's, but that's the smarter move. Make more money for less volume. True. And that's still an incredible volume. Yes, I mean, I, I had a million dollar operation at the end and I was moving like 250 pounds a month at most. Mm-hmm. Just it's, it's all about how much profit you're making per piece, right? So how does it go from, how does it go from like, you know, a hundred pounds, 200 pounds a month to 2000? You just keep meeting people that are moving it right? You just keep making, how many people did you have distributing for you at your height? The bigger I got, the less people I had distributing. I really knocked a lot of people out unless they were turning over volume mm-hmm. and they were smart. I would, they had to have a legitimate business. They mm-hmm. had to be, you know, there's a lot of boxes they needed to check. Mm-hmm. If, they, if they had a prior record, I probably wasn't working with them. Mm-hmm. And the way you made more and more connections was because you had the best price. Is that because you were getting it? It's not even just the best price. Sometimes I would charge a little more, but it was the service. Things weigh out properly. Things are on time. People are comfortable. They're comfortable with my drivers. They don't feel intimidated. They don't feel like there's heat. Mm -hmm. Like when you came to my ring or you met with me, you felt there was a good chance that you were safe in good hands. I didn't, I was a very low profile dude. So Mm -hmm. like, you don't want to deal with anybody that has heat on them. And I didn't have any heat. I was a ghost. Like, yeah, yeah in college, they briefly, small window, they tried to get a couple buys off me with a couple wires, but I was a small time dude. That just, I let that, that faded away once I moved out of town. They weren't going to follow me around. Gotcha. So okay. I, so you graduated college in four years? Yeah, right on time with my degree. What'd you get a degree in? Business management. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so how much money do you have at this point? What's your bank role I, look I like? I graduated college with, I would want to say I had set aside, I probably had quarter million I was working with and another quarter million buried. Nice. Okay, cool. So a half a million straight out of college, no debt. I Paid assume. my college loans off too. Beautiful, right? And back then college wasn't even expensive anyways. Nine grand a year. So yeah, right? <laughs> so you got a leg up now. So you got about a half a million dollars to your name uh, and you got about a, a and a half of that is is moving in the business. So where did you go after college and how did the business ramp up? Tell us about that. And then your, how you started moving it All right, across I moved, from Canada. I moved to a small little town called Saratoga Springs, New York, a little over, a little over a hundred pounds from the Canadian border. And I, I chose that location because I could evade that temporary heat that was on me in college, mm-hmm. close to the border. And number two it was a clean town. There wasn't really any crime. 
uh, family area, residential, mm-hmm. quiet. And it was a perfect place for me to start a legal business where I could be a good law abiding citizen. Mm-hmm. And at night I could set up my hub and distribute out of town only mm-hmm. nothing locally. Right. What was your front business? What was your legal I had business? A, I had a business building, natural swimming pools, waterfalls, and ponds. Why did you choose that? I used to eat a lot of psychedelics when I was a kid running around in the woods. And I remember this one time I ran and I stumbled, I was tripping my balls off running through the forest. And I, <laughs> I heard this trickling water in the distance and I ran up to the water and I just, I just dug my hands right into the bed of the Creek. And I lifted up all the sand and it was just like dripping down my arms and I just felt alive. Uh-huh. I just felt plugged in and connected with the earth. And I, this is a time when I had a lot of chaos in my life. Mm-hmm. And having that feeling of being grounded like this, I was tripping so hard. I was like, everybody needs to be here right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dude. Like I, was just like, I just felt so good. And there was like this guy with this cane standing across the creek from me, giving me a message saying, you should stay here. Don't leave. Grant, that was a very elusive ghost-like figure. Part of it was made up. I knew I was tripping. I wasn't that far gone. But it was a, it was a message that was coming to me. And after that trip, I decided, I was like, I want to share water with people like water is healing mm-hmm. cleansing mm-hmm. it tracks wealth everybody wants to, where, where do people go when they go on vacation the water the water so i created i, I took a course or a seminar on how to build these water features and waterfalls and coincidentally some kid showed me a brochure on he's like this should be a this would be a good business for you and i was mm-hmm. like oh hell yeah it just lined up the universe lined it up interesting so it was kind of just a passion as well not just uh yeah it was a passion a but it wasn't as fun as moving weight <laughs> No, I mean, no shit. What is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Name exactly. me one thing yeah. that is. There isn't. There's it's, nothing. It's unbelievable. Living outside the law and not having to answer to anybody, it's a sense of freedom. What's up, you guys? Let's take a minute to thank our longtime sponsor of the show, Mood. You guys, this is the number one CBD and Delta 8, Delta 9 products company in the country, completely legal and delivered discreetly to your doorstep. You guys, go over to hellomood.co to get a wide array of everything from gummies, edibles, pre-rolls, flour. You guys, I use CBD every day. It helps with my joint pain. It helps me sleep. It helps with anxiety, as well as the Delta 8 and Delta 9 products. Hello Mood is the last company you will need to use when it comes to these products, you guys. They are offering an amazing discount right now. You know what to do. Go over to hellomood.co and use that promo code connect 20 to get 20% off anything on their website. And that is a whole lot to choose from. And of course they're offering an amazing giveaway. If you guys use the promo code connect free, you're going to get a five count pack of gummies delivered completely free. And all you do is pay for shipping. You guys go to hellomood.co right now and support them because they support our great show. Thank you so much. Let's get back into the episode. The fact that you, this just loner white kid who's not a gangster, you're just kind of this like anonymous person in an anonymous part of the country that nobody gives a about. How did it feel to just make 2000 pounds go like this? It's gone. And now here's honestly, I 3 million bucks. I became immune to that feeling. I be, I don't, I, cause it was such a gradual thing. It mm. didn't, it wasn't overnight. I was in, I started with dime bags and a pound and 10 pounds and 20, then 30. And there were other, I just was felt like a normal person in many ways because everybody I deal with on a daily basis, when I wake up 
is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. There were mm-hmm. other players that there are other people around me that I knew that were worth 10 million plus mm-hmm. for moving weed. Yeah. So, uh, they're doing the same thing, bro. Like living, living fast life, right? Like, okay. So you're in Saratoga Springs. You're connected with the Asian triad and I'm not, I'm not dealing directly with them. I'm not, I who, don't, who are your connects I, up in I, Canada? I, I'm there. I had it. I had a handful of people. You have to understand, bro. I paid 12 million to the feds. So I wouldn't have to work undercover. Okay. So, so as far as me talking about who were my connects and stuff, like yeah. I, I, I listen, who were they? I forget. I forget. Not, I don't, forget. don't tell me their names. Just tell me their ethnicities. Oh, there's different. Oh, I had hands full. There were, know? there were Indians. There were Italians. There were Russians. Mm-hmm. There were Asians. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were, there were two, there were two people that I didn't even actually meet face to face. I just worked through an encrypted Blackberry. Wow. Never met the dude. I have no clue. I, he was connected, owned some hotels, mm-hmm. shit like that. But, and these are people out of Quebec, Can- Canada, Canada. Well, at this yeah, point, at this country. point, I Quebec had or Ontario I, initially, we're going to get to these details. <laughs> initially, initially Quebec, Montreal, mm-hmm. then eventually Vancouver. Okay. Asians. Asians out of uh, Quebec. Okay. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Who are the people working out of Vancouver? Vancouver. I've, I never met them face to face. I had an encrypted Blackberry that I placed all my orders through and okay. they were, they were a tight crew, man. You're talking 18 wheelers, like wow. professional wow. company, helicopters, like le- real deal shit. Wow. Okay. Smart. So tell us about a helicopter deal. How does that bring end to end? What would you, what would an order be at this time? Now the helicopter, I didn't do that very often. Most orders are 18 wheelers. Gotcha. Now a helicopter deals a few times. That was a smaller load, like 300 pounds. Uh-huh. It's basically at night, a helicopter comes over, touches down for a second and is gone. Right. Right. And is like, there- it's dark. Like I didn't even see the markings. Yeah. How do you find it? Is there like a GPS track? There's a spot. No, no. There's a spot that they said, be here at this time. Wow. And you didn't get much notice for that drop point. It's you never, you never get noticed. That was a tough, that was a reason why I couldn't hold down a girlfriend and be like, how come we can't go to Spain? How come we can't go to France? And we have the tickets book. I'm like, I can't get on the plane because it's not like, oh, we'll see you Friday at 2 PM. No, you get an hour's notice. Like when they get a window, yeah, it's getting dropped. Right. And that's how the, that's when you're running the border. You don't give a heads up to when you're going to do your deal. Cause it's, it's all about when the border patrol's not there. Well, it's, a, it's, it's too, it's, it's everybody assumes there's heat everywhere at that level. Yeah. So when there's heat that at that level, eventually the feds need to go to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when they're not out doing their surveillance or something, and also they're going to set up surveillance when they know a load's going down, like, Oh yeah. Yo, uh, the age Friday at 2 PM, Friday at 2 PM. It's going <laughs> down and they're yeah. like, all right, cool. They're going to put up 20 guys on surveillance. Okay. So how does it work, you know, with, with Coke coming from South America, even weed, any product that's, you know, touching the hands of the cartels, generally it's the load gets sold first after it makes it to America, the load has to get sold before everybody gets paid. How does it work with smuggling coming from Canada? That's generally how it worked. But the reason I had so many connects that wanted to work with me because I was always cash on delivery. You were COD. Yeah. Yeah. That's how cash, I was. Cash on delivery. And, and some of the smart players would never have the cash and the work at the same place at the same time. Of course. Because if you just have work, 
that's not really drug dealing. If you just have money, that's not illegal, but you put two, two together, that's called drug dealing. Mm -hmm. Sure. So sometimes they drop the load and then three days later, the money gets left in a certain place. So how would you be COD though? Like if somebody's uh, bringing it over an 18 wheeler, how are you getting them the cash on the spot in the moment? Well, that depend on what outfit I was working with, but the 18 wheelers are more professional in the sense that they would get the cash 24 hours later. Gotcha. So it's still considered COD. When I say mm -hmm. non COD, that's like you're paying back two, three weeks later. Yeah. 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 You have to sell it first with yeah. you. It's like, I got the cash. You'll get yeah. it when I, so you always got your work first. Exactly. Okay. No, 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 not. There's also smaller end guys were dropped 200 pounds. Yeah. They dropped the 200 pounds and I give them a half million right on the spot. Right on the spot. Yeah. Okay. Um, or tell us about how you coordinate when, when you were bringing it over in 18 wheelers, what's an order like that? Is that a thousand pounds? Like what was, what was an average order? The when you smallest load, the smallest load I ever saw on an 18 wheeler was 300 pounds, but normally you're looking at a thousand pounds on an 18 wheeler mm -hmm. and that's mixed with legitimate products or mm -hmm. produce or whatever it could be bedding you could you there could be 60 mattresses on an 18 wheeler and you cut open 12 of them mm -hmm. and just weed pours out of the box springs mm -hmm. which i was like this is when i saw that i was oh, like they would have the buds just no no they would be the, the pounds packaging, would be packaged right, in the right. box springs but when i saw that i was like jesus christ this is a shitty operation like the box spring was like bowed out i was right. like and I, I actually didn't even work with that crew again after that. Really? Yeah, it was just, it wasn't set up properly. Did you ever have a, a time when you were expecting a load and it got stopped and seized at the border? Um, Not with that crew, but there were, there were a handful of times, but that's not, that's out of my hands. That's no loss to me. Yes, there were, oh, of course, there were a handful but... of times when loads definitely got jammed up at the border. Mm -hmm. Now there's various reasons. There's been times where it could get stolen and there was a shootout. It's not, it's not just the, the, the feds or the border patrol. So loads would get jacked. There was one particular load that was jacked. And I told, he, he's like, I offered him a price. He's like, it's too low. I have guys that'll come up from the city. that will pay more. Oh yeah. They came up from the city. All right. And there was a shootout. Wow. Yeah. Nobody <sighs> died, but still there was a shootout. My guy took off on a four wheeler and his whole load got stolen. Wow. Hundreds of pounds. Yeah, it was about 200 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, that used to happen. That used to happen. Uh, you know, uh, gangs from Portland, you know, Mexican gangs, black gangs, they would go meet these hippie like growers out in the mountains of Southern Oregon. And they, those guys would be sitting ducks and they would just take their whole season yeah. in one fell swoop. Bad business. Yeah. Okay. So uh, say the 18 wheeler makes it across the border, a thousand pounds. Where is your crew meeting it at like a warehouse? Where does it go from there? One thing about my organization, which is a little abnormal is I was very hands-on for being the boss. Okay. Number two, nobody knew I was the boss. That's okay. An, that's, tell, that's, tell us about your organization. This is fascinating. All right. What kept, here's what's unique about my organization. Extremely unique nationwide. All right. I was a number nine in the underworld. Number 10 is when you take out the witnesses. I didn't take the witnesses out. Number two, what's extremely unique. What does that mean? You were number nine. What does and that like mean? Like a one to 10 scale. Like how big of a dealer are you? How big of a player? I right. was a number nine. Number 10 is when you take out the witnesses, when you pay off cops, you, you tip off the cops about your competition. 
shit like that. You're really like, you're in the motherfucker. You're in the game, bro. Like, oh, so you're I was still in the game, but I always told myself I wasn't in the game. Yeah. When I went to bed at night, I was a little waterfall pond boy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so this is what's unique for me to have a 12, 13 year run without the feds catching wind of what I'm doing or my name. Yeah. Granted, they watched me in college for a few weeks, mm -hmm. but after that, I was a ghost to be able to have it. most people that run at my level usually catch heat within three years. Yeah. So sure. with me, I had no heat because I didn't talk to anybody. Uh, I never said I was the boss. I said, if somebody placed an order for 500 pounds, I said, I'll have to get back to you and check. I already had it in inventory. Mm. I knew what the price was going to mm. be, but I didn't say, I didn't say that. I'm just a nobody. So that's what kept me off the radar. That's extremely unique. Like I, my buddy, he's a private investigator. I hired him to investigate the DEA because they were investigating me. So I was like, I'm going to investigate them. He's a badass investigator, top dog, private jets, <laughs> fly. Actually, James Patterson, the thrill writer, yeah. wants to write a book about him, but he said, no, I don't want to do it. He's very like low key, quiet dude, just all about his business. Wow. So how, how, did, how did that look? Like, how did you know you had heat from the DEA? And well, then, this was after my first arrest. I'm jumping the gun. Okay. That's, that's when I was getting ready to face trial. But Answer one question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Answer me. How did you, when, when a, what was the organization like? Who did you have working for you and what functions? And yeah, and how would you meet a load okay. when it first got across the border? Yes. All right. So I was almost an employee of my organization. Remember, I was never the boss. So I actually would meet some loads. I mm -hmm. wouldn't send one of my lieutenants to go retrieve the load. It depends mm -hmm. on who it was. Sometimes I would if I was if I was out of town dealing with another deal and a load just popped into my local town, Saratoga, I would send somebody there. I'll be like, listen, don't talk. Don't say your name. You just pick it up. Do not look at the work. Because if you're just picking up 10 duffel bags and you don't open it, and you know nothing and the feds jump in plausible deniability. You don't even know what's in the bags. Mm. So my employees would know, don't look in the bag. You're sitting in a trial. You have no clue what's in there. Mm. It could have been just film equipment. Well, I don't know. I, I've, <laughs> I mean, you have a good lawyer to argue that one, my man. Well, uh, they figure it, out a way. <laughs> if it's just a one-time thing, if they're doing it for multiple times, but these are people that occasionally do things. So how was mm -hmm. my organization structured? Well, this is what I had. I had a warehouse for inventory to be stashed. In Saratoga. In Saratoga. I right. had a warehouse for receiving orders, which was separate from the storage warehouse. Just, you don't want it to get robbed. Right. right. And then, uh, and would you stock I, these warehouses with pool equipment too? No, no. Now let me just say this isn't your net normal commercial warehouse. This is more of a stash house. I mm -hmm. call it I call it a warehouse. I find remote homes. I do short-term leases, long-term leases that have privacy, long driveways. And uh now the place where I needed to get the 18 wheelers in out of I I had to have a special driveway made 20 feet wide to right, get down right. and turn around. Um now so I would have a place where I just kept cell phones. I kept 14 to 18 cell phones at just one house wow. because in case any of them were being watched or had heat on the GPS signal would go to a house that didn't have work in it. Right. So I never brought my phones to where the work was or I pop, pop the battery out. Right. And, uh, so that's, then I have a separate home for cash. Mm -hmm. That's where cash is kept for place and orders. Mm -hmm. So, uh, how many, and what about the cash? Did you trust your, your, the guys you were working with? Did they know 
you know, they never knew how much I have. I might have somebody, all my, most of my customers at my height had credit lines of a million bucks. Now, wow. as far as I didn't ever put all my eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have, nobody knew my net worth. I didn't even know my net worth. I'd check once a year. It was just like a constantly moving thing. And I would mm -hmm. set a target. I want to hit this amount. I want to hit this amount. And uh, it came a time where my, I was young and my ego was in the way where I wasn't even competing with myself. I'd be competing against other dealers in my mind. I wouldn't mm -hmm. say that. Like if I saw another dealer just made a, you know, a million or 2 million that month, I'd be like, I want that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, so how was my organization structured? This, I didn't throw these parties that you watch in the movies and everybody comes and meets everybody. Nobody, if anybody in my organization were to get pinched and they started talking, they could only talk about what they knew with me. They couldn't talk about the rest of the organization because they never met anybody and they don't even know that I have an exhort organization. Mm -hmm. I'm just a kid that can get them work occasionally. Mm -hmm. That's it. So I set up, I set it up. Everything was a need to know basis. I, I took the ego out of it where I needed to say I'm the man. Right. Okay. So it doesn't sound like you had anybody whose sole function was to watch your back, pick up loads, give it to people. Like you didn't have anybody full time. Your organization was just your dealers. The people that were distributing. No, I, I had about five people on steady payroll drivers and somebody that would just live at a certain stash house. Yeah. Yeah. They would just live there and they'd get the lease in their name. But they, all they knew was what they knew. Yeah. So if I put a thousand pounds at your house, that's all you know. You don't know whose work it is. It might not even be mine. Mm -hmm. Just be like, here, I need to leave this in the basement and then pay them. And that's and, it. And people like the money. Yeah, of course. Like Especially people, up there. There's no at, industry. At, at, the, at the end of the day, everybody can be bought. Mm. Everybody. I'm talking everybody. White collar. Like, it's just a matter of how much you're willing to pay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the amount of risk. Okay, so 18-wheeler, 1,000 pounds, you meet it at one stash. How many drivers, how many different drivers are then taking that out of town? Uh, it depends on how I break it up, but I had an account in every single state on the East Coast between New Orleans and Boston. You had a what? I had an account in every single state on the East Coast between New Orleans and Boston. And that means you had a distributor in every single and one I of those driver states. I had a driver that would go. I, had, I even had St. Louis, New Orleans, Florida, Atlanta, uh, Charleston, uh, Pennsylvania, plenty in Brooklyn. Um, not, I'm not obviously not Delaware. I don't even know where that state is. I yeah. It's not like, a real state. Yeah, exactly. Not even a place. Yeah. So you would have, so, uh, out of a thousand pounds, you know, that's maybe a hundred pounds makes it to each one of those places. Well, it depends. Uh, sometimes depends if people lowball me, I'll cut them off for a few weeks or a mm -hmm. month mm -hmm. and 400 pounds would go one place. I had one guy in the city that would take endless amounts. So if people were lowballing me too much, I would just dump him all my excess. But he would, I made nothing off him. I made like 5%, 4% if I was lucky, but he took all my overflow. If I had too much inventory stocking up, because uh, in Manhattan back in the day, that was really the hub for the East Coast cannabis, right? right? Like right. all the good work came to man, uh, Brooklyn, the mm -hmm. five boroughs. Yeah. And then from there, it was spread along the East Coast and, uh, I knew some good players there. And would your would you collect COD? So you're paying your supplier, your Canadian suppliers COD. Are your distributors and all of these hubs also COD? Nah, down in the southern states, it was about 50-50. Half of them were COD. The other half I had on consignment. Now, and you're not a gangster. What if one of these guys just doesn't want to pay? You just chalk it up as a loss? No, people always paid. Honestly, I... I uh, 
How do you know I'm not a gangster? I just can tell because <laughs> I've been around gangsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what <laughs> we've if, had them on but, this but, show. But, but what if I? Like, hey, I'm not I'm just, scared I'm of just you. saying. <laughs> what if you know? What if I were to? Not that I did this, but do you think I would be capable of telling somebody to go fix this problem for me? Of course. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever have? But you never had a problem like that. No, but I could have. I had. I could have. If I needed to do mm -hmm. that, that could be done. Right. Tune into the Patreon episode where Eric tells the truth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, okay, but gotcha. But you're the connect at that level when you're dealing with that much weight. Your distributors are also good business people. They don't want to. You don't want to rip the connect off because then you don't have a connect. Yeah, yeah. You're you don't want to. You don't want to bite the hands that feeds you. Yeah, that's a fact. Yeah. So I've I've had some problems, bro. I like. I don't. I've had some problems, and you know. Now, did any of the work, so uh, just for argument's sake, let's say a thousand pounds makes it to your spot in Saratoga Springs. Did you maybe have like four drivers taking 300 each more yeah, or less? I had, a, I had a steady three to five drivers. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, are they, do they have any spotters that are escorting them to their, their destinations? In, in, in there, if I had to do drives near the border, yes, there was a spotter. And the, also we, they had well, certain people I worked with had satellite phones because there's spotty service, right. cell service in places. Right. So if they needed to go check for roadblocks, things like that. Okay. Um, but now once I got down into the middle of the country, there's just basic rules. If you have out-of-state plates, you can't drive after 9 p.m. Okay. Stick to the main highways, no yep. partying. Right. Clean driver's record, no felony records, no misdemeanors, nothing. My drivers were well-kept. Some of them by in collared shirts. Some of them would have their suit hanging in the back. Yep. Yeah, uh, everybody had a good story. Everybody white. Um. Yep. Yep. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> this guy knows what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Not all my customers were. I my Obviously. customers were all different colors. Of course. But uh, my drivers, yes. Yes, that's just the way it is, man. Yep. It's a racist country. Uh. So you did they ever get pinched with work on a, on a drive? All my down? drivers. Yeah, I've lost uh, three drivers. Now. One of my paid, I paid his legal fees. I lost a couple hundred thousand dollar load. He walked. How did he walk? It was just a small deal. He was, he had a 200,000 pound load on him. No priors. 200, how much? A 200, $200,000 load on him. It was a smaller load. It was worth 200 grand. It was probably like 60, 70 pounds. That was a smaller load. Anything under 200 pounds is not really a it's federal not federal. Offense. Right, right. Yeah. But it depends. 60 kilos. pounds in Texas will get you the death penalty practically. Oh uh, yeah, this was... Uh, I think this was Virginia. That's wild. So yeah. did, and you never instructed them. You were never worried that they were going to turn around and, and he, snitch he on you? No, well, you're always worried about that. But yeah. my drivers were pretty well trusted. Eventually, one driver did rat on me. Her name's Missy Giovi. She was actually, <laughs> she, she was one of the fastest female Shout mountain out. bikers in the world. Fastest female, won several World Cups. She's like a semi-celebrity. And, uh, you know, actually, when I first got arrested about, you know, 13, 14 years ago, a lot of people wanted to interview me and get me my side of the story. But I couldn't talk because my lawyer's like, we're going to trial. You yeah. can't be running your mouth. So yeah. just sit tight. So I've really never talked about this story till this past year, mm -hmm. you know, 13 years later. Uh, but Mrs. Giobi was talking about it all the time on interviews. You know, and like, there was even a point where she was telling 
certain people that she was the connect. She was the main person. She was just a driver. Nobody really knows. She flipped on me. She sold me on a second. How much were you paying your drivers? I, I was paying her 60,000. So imagine well, that. Imagine getting 60 grand tax yeah. free back in 2009. Yeah. For in the four, middle or five, of the, four or five days work. In the middle of the recession. Yeah. Like now, would they pick the, were you paying them per pound? It depends. Sometimes it was per pound. Sometimes it was dependent on how far the drive was, how, you know, there was a lot of variables. So would they pick the cash up? If it was COD, would they pick it up and then drive it back to you? Uh, most of the time, if it was COD, yeah, I'd have mm. them, but nobody looked at anything. Everything was sealed up. Cash is in a box, tape mm. shut. You just grab the box. You don't talk. The best drivers know not to talk. You show up, howdy, exchange, leave. There's mm -hmm. no names exchanged. Mm -hmm. There's nothing. It's very clean and simple and fast. How did you find out that the other, the other two people that got popped, uh, how did you find out? Did they call you? I guess, or your probably your customers called and were like, Hey, the order never made it. Well, right. Uh, the one guy, yeah. My first guy that my main driver, they got popped. Uh, I just knew if they're not checking in mm -hmm. and gut instincts go a long way in this business. Of course. So I followed that. I wasn't, as I got bigger in the business, I wasn't doing a lot of drugs. So I, especially alcohol, alcohol yeah. destroy you. Mm. So I was very aware of all sections of my organization at all times. Would you change up when the drivers got pinched? They know where your stash house is. Would you, would you move the work? Would you move? Well, they don't stash know where my houses? stash house is. My drivers know where the pickup and delivery is. They don't know where, they don't know where the inventory stored. Okay. But how would you get that inventory to them they would come to a receiving house gotcha so who put that but so would you stop using that receiving house if you found out that they got pinched oh yeah yeah every every time and as something happened i had to switch you would, the whole you would organization. move it up you have to dump all your phones new phones new warehouses yeah certain people have to get cut out um, right but eventually when Missy got pinched, she brought the heat right to me, man. That was a, that's all in my book but she really did a number on my organ and you know, i remember when she told me she's like I was like, are you cool? Are you safe? And you know, she's like, she's like, my dad used to be a bookie for the mob. If anything happens, I'm good. I'm solid. And she, she literally, if she got pinched and she just kept her mouth shut, she probably would have got three to five years max. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would have given her a million bucks when she got out. All right. Okay. So tell us, is she what began the unraveling of your organization? Oh, yeah. She brought me to my knees, bro. Okay. So let's 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 go into that. So things are moving. It sounds like you're constantly bringing loads over the border, receiving them, sending cash back up. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. I was like an air traffic controller. It's crazy. I had, the day I got arrested, I had over $4 million worth of work coming to me. How many pounds Be because, is that? Because, uh, how many pounds is how that? How many pounds is that? That was probably around 1500 to 2000 I had some stuff that was priced at two 2000 a pound, some stuff that was up at 3500 That was really top shelf stuff out of high, Vancouver. High-end indoor stuff, right? High-end indoor. Yeah. I remember, this is way back in the day. This, this is, is when a pound this, of that in Washington Heights, Manhattan would have gone for like 65 There you go. And that's where yeah. some of it ended up, I'm sure. Yeah, of course. So- the un So that day, I had multiple loads coming to me. I had- it, my, I should say that was a busy day the day I got busted because I was out of town for a, a week. I was down in Florida for a little bit meet, meeting this girl, and I went out to Bonnaroo Music Festival, and my phones were buzzing. Everything was backed up. But I, it was the first time I actually took a vacation in a year or two. I didn't really take vacations. I was a workaholic. My There's my, no time to take yeah, vacations. You don't take vacations life. when yeah. you're in that game. You, your vacation is at the end of the night, whatever you can find money to spend on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or jail. 
And I, how, and depending on how easy you got it. Jail, jail was a vacation. Yeah. For me. It was the first time and nobody called me. Yeah. Right. Wow. Okay. So the night you get pinched, you got $4 million worth of product coming to you. How did that happen? All right. So, uh, I hired Missy Giovi, paid her 60. So most of my work was coming out of, uh, in the early 2000s, coming out of Canada. Come 08, a lot of my customers are complaining my prices are too high because what was happening is California was starting to flood over into the East Coast. That's right. Because there was a surplus starting around 07 from the West Coast where they had too much to supply the West Coast. Yeah. So then they dump it over to the East. And as Dealers couldn't make any money over there yeah, like me. So, and that's why we started shipping it yeah, to New York. Exactly. So they started trickling over to the East Coast and I had competition. Mm -hmm. So I started, I go, what's all this West Coast action about? So I went out to Northern California mm -hmm. in uh, late 2008, put some feelers out. I had a handful of different people I knew out there. I did a little tour, checked out people's operations. And I set up a nice little hub over there. We got a small little warehouse, had somebody manage it for me. And I started sourcing from different growers. Okay. And then yep. I, once I put together three to 500 pounds, I would have it sent to the East Coast. And, and is I, this, is this fire? Is this like, this is top, this is like back in the day, it was top shelf indoor. Top shelf indoor. Okay. So this is top shelf then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is top shelf stuff. out of There was some good, actually. They're some really of the outdoor, some of the outdoor back then, I was like, this is top shelf shit. I, I preferred some of the outdoor versus the indoor. Mm -hmm. It's just like that crunchy granola. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. A lot of that high end outdoor from that area looked like indoor back in the day. Yeah. yeah. So I hired Missy Giove to run the loads because in my mind, downhill mountain biking was founded in Northern California. Mm -hmm. So I figured she'd be the perfect driver because if the cops pulled her over, they might even ask her for her autograph, autograph mm. right? She was somewhat of a celebrity back then, mm -hmm. especially in that region. So I thought she was a good fit until I really put my professional transport uh, plan into place, which was to have an 18-wheeler fruit truck bring the work to the East Coast and then have a private jet bring the cash back over that way. And that mm -hmm. was, I was getting that all set up. I met with the pilot, with the truckers, everything was getting set up, but I was still using Missy temporarily. And I'd pay her 60,000 just to hook a trailer to a dually pickup truck, drive it East in crates. Yeah. Okay. So it was kind of like a cowboy way of doing things. But mm -hmm. at that point I was getting a little sloppy because honestly, I wasn't passionate about weed anymore by this mm -hmm. time. I wanted out of the game. So I took some shortcuts here and there. And you're worth how much at this point? Late 2008. Well over 10 million. Yeah. Yeah. So. And where were you? Are you burying that money? What were you, were you deploying uh, well, I, it in I, the businesses? I, I, I did bury some money in my younger days, but then it ended up getting musty and the bills would stick together. Yeah. So then I diversified and started burying gold bars. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I had a lot of gold. I actually... I actually ended up giving the feds close to $10 million in gold bars, which we'll get to. I'll explain wow. that. Okay. But, uh, so Missy Giovi, I'm paying her $60,000 a run. And she ended up subbing the job out to her massage therapist for only three grand and didn't tell her there was weed in the trailer. So this massage therapist is speeding across the country and got pulled over by a cop. They searched the vehicle. And she cooperates. Well, I don't even know who this massage therapist is cooperate so they'll do anything they ended up delivering the load to a property of mine in saratoga springs and missy would take over the load the last five miles of the drive to make it look like she was mm -hmm. the driver mm -hmm. she would fly into town and uh she she uh she brought the heat right to my doorstep bro wow i saw the feds when the when that trailer pulled up i saw in the distance 
first off, I'd never had a trailer come right to the place. I would always have it meet me in a remote location. I would look, see if there was any surveillance, and mm -hmm. then I would bring it to a drop point a few miles down the mm -hmm. road. When I brought Missy, I actually brought that load to my personal residence, which I rarely do, yeah. which I rarely did. But I did it just because I was like, again, I was taking shortcuts. Mm -hmm. Yep. So much going on that you cut corners here. You get comfortable. That's right. That's right. So I was, I had so much, go, I was out of town. I had a lot of shit going on. So brought to my personal residence and I saw about 300 yards out of Chevy Malibu and I knew it was out of place. And I knew by the headlights, I go, that's, that's the feds. What are they doing here? So I looked at Missy and I put my finger right up and I was like, don't, I, I told her not to talk because I didn't know if she had a wire. I didn't know where this heat was coming from. Brought her upstairs in my house, had her open her shirt. She proved to me she wasn't wearing a wire. And I knew she was clueless by her energy and her reaction. She's like, what are you doing, baby? Relax. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I knew the heat was coming from somewhere else. Um, and I asked her, are you sure you drove this load yourself? And she's like, yeah. And I, I knew. I knew. She looked too clean cut and well rested to have driven four or five days on the road, <laughs> right. sleeping in Hampton Inns. Yeah. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. so I knew she was lying. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I said, I opened up the trailer. I wanted to just open the trailer. Look like I was, she was there, but I didn't want to unload anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't want, I just opened the trailer. I looked at her dirt bike. I actually wheeled the dirt bike out of the trailer to make it look like in the court of law, I was taking a dirt bike from mm -hmm. her, closed the trailer up, said, leave. And, and the feds are now driving the, towards you on your property. They're not driving towards me on their property because I haven't unloaded anything yet. There's no, they're not going to come to, they don't even know my name. They don't know who I am. Oh, so they're just surveilling you now. There, there's a, there's a plane in the air doing surveillance. There's a car down the road. And I later find out there's another 20 agents surrounded within a several mile radius mm -hmm. of the, the mm -hmm. spot. And, uh, so I say, get out of here. I go, this is game over. I go, keep your mouth shut. We're going to get arrested. I go, you leave. And I left. I went a separate direction. I went just I just coasted out of there like I knew nothing because that's if right now in the court of law, she dropped me off a dirt bike. I unloaded it. She left. I have no clue what's in those crates of that trailer. Yep. So she leaves. I leave. I see as I'm leaving a mile down the road, I see more feds like just sitting on the side of the road in cars. Mm -hmm. I go, oh, fuck, this is going to be a long day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I get up to the stop sign. They're not telling me though close because yeah. they don't want to blow their cover. They're trying to follow this trailer to see where it's going to unload yeah. the weed. Yeah. So I get, I get down after a couple miles, I, I hit a red light and I notice, and I see the feds, a couple cars back. I go, I, I, my mind's racing milliseconds, lots of decisions. What do I do? Do I run? I can get a passport for 60 grand and bounce. Mm -hmm. I have enough money in different places where I could have be gone. But I eventually get on the main highway and I create a cluster of traffic behind me. And I kind of create a traffic jam. There's a couple 18 wheelers in the left and middle lane. I'm, I'm sorry, in the right and middle lane. I'm in the way left lane. I slow down, create a bunch of traffic behind us, maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 cars. And, and you're clean, right? I'm clean. You I got nothing, nothing on, on me because, yeah. because as I was, before I got on the highway, I was taking batteries out of my phones and chucking them out the window. Mm -hmm. I had an IOU ledger. I ripped that up, chucked that out the yeah. window. So a lot of the, the evidence was gone in my, there was nothing in my car. And, uh, I get on the highway and I'm, I, once I get enough traffic behind me and I see that the cars tell me or they're, they're jammed behind that traffic, I then get in front of the 18 wheelers out of sight for a second and I gun it at a hundred and I dip off the next exit and I get lost. I've lost them. And, and this is rural New York. This you're, is upstate you're, New York. I mean, it's not too rural, but yeah, compared to where LA, my, yeah, it's rural New upstate. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I call my stepfather on my personal phone. I go, I need to see you right now. And I meet him at a gas station. He's like, what's wrong? I go, listen, I'm going to get blessed. He's like, well, he doesn't know anything about my organization. He just knew I always had money. Probably wondered where I was getting money, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, a lot of money I, in the... Uh pool building business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just like, listen, there's 200 grand in a picnic basket in your basement. I'm going to get arrested any minute. I need you to bail me out. Cause I always just had, I just happened to put 200 grand there. Maybe I'd die one day. And yeah. they, they, it's just, you know, there's a time, bro. I remember I just having so much money. You forget where you put it. Totally. I remember, I remember one time I went to go do my laundry and I opened the dryer. There's a duffel bag with a million bucks in it. <laughs> I totally forgot. I had one of my guys. I, I said where the key was and I go, I was out of town. I go, listen, just put it in the dryer. I was yeah, a lot of cash. You always would find stacks different places and ten grand in a jacket pocket. Here Isn't that there. exciting? You feel yeah. like you just made money. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it was, it was. Uh, but that was all my life was, bro. You know, I, I the money came so fast at a young age, bro. That I my identity was based on the money I mm -hmm. made rather than the person I was. Mm -hmm. I still hadn't really grown up. I was still just a little boy mm -hmm. seeking validation, acceptance. Didn't really know how to handle women. I learned a lot from escorts. So you had, a, you had an escort habit? You I had an escort habit because you can't, it was very hard for me to hold down a girlfriend mm -hmm. because I, if I make a dinner date for eight, 9 PM, there's a good chance I'm not going to show up. Yeah. I might not get home till midnight. If I get home at midnight, I have to go into the yellow pages. Back <laughs> right. then it was the yellow pages. It wasn't the internet. Sure. Yeah. You have to go through an agency. It's even dicier. Yeah. yeah you got to go through an agency and you got to talk to the, the manager and Some you need Russian to go, are, are your girls real? Are they really pretty? Like, yeah. is it, is, you know, cause I'm not paying if they show up and they're not this picture. Mm. Things I've like, done that. Yeah. <laughs> at some bachelor parties, I've had to save the groom from a couple of hogs, <laughs> a couple of wild hogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you go meet up with your stepdad. Is he panicked? Is he like, what the f going on? Like, is he, or or does he take the news pretty well? Is he like, he's a he was always a calm dude. Yeah, I wasn't super close with him because he caused me a lot of pain. But he was he was the enforcer for my mom's rules. Yeah, I'm not really his blood. Yeah, he just does what my mom says. He was actually a pretty laid back dude, but my mom really in my opinion, pushed him too hard. So I, that's a whole other story. But he was the dude that was there for me if I was a kid and I fell off a wall and had needed 32 stitches in my leg or yeah. if I banged my head. And every time mm -hmm. I needed to get to rush to the ER, he was the dude that did mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So he was default the guy that I call when I'm going to jam. Yeah. So uh, you tell him where the money is and then you split. Yep, I'm out of there. Okay. And, and at this point... Like I said, I could have still dipped out and got this passport. I can't believe you didn't get one before that. Just as a yeah, contingency. I just never wanted, I, you know, good point, but I was getting sloppier as yeah. I got bigger. Also, you don't want to live in Canada. I'd rather be in prison than live up there. Yeah. It's I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know enough. I didn't know. I don't know a ton about Canada. I just, but even though I pulled all my work from there, like I said, I didn't go up there much, mm. but I decided to drive back home and face the feds. Wow. Yeah. I drove right back home and before I, when I was only a mile from my home though, I pumped up, I filled up my tank with gas. Cause I, for some reason in my gut, I felt better about approaching the enemy with a full tank of gas <laughs> rather than a yeah, half tank. For sure. It was just like that survival mm -hmm. instinct. And when I was pumping the gas, I heard the footsteps run up behind me down on the ground, down on the ground. So there was actually a, a trooper. I don't know if a half mile out that spotted my making ve my vehicle. Because obviously they had on the radio, be on the lookout for uh, this vehicle. What so were you driving? So. I was driving a tan GMC Sierra. I always bought the same color vehicle every single year, the same make and model. 
so people couldn't tell that I got a new vehicle and become jealous. Mm-hmm. Right. Smart. Yeah. Um, okay, so they bag you. Cuff me up, bring me back to my house. And as soon as they said, what's your name, kid? We're here to help you. I knew they had no case. Yes. Because why are you asking me my name? Boom. Yeah. So they made us. So right there, I knew I felt safe. I was like, all right, good. Wow. We're going to insulate this problem. Right. We're going to isolate it for the rest of all the shit. Because keep in mind, I still have another $3 million of work coming to me that afternoon. In the Saratoga Springs area? Yeah. The first load that came was from Missy. That was a million dollar load that just got pinched. Mm Mm-hmm. So how many pounds? About five hundred. Uh, depends on the the, the like no, I said. It depends. It, it, it depends. Certain people were bringing me outdoors. Certain people were bringing mm-hmm. me indoor. The prices back then ranged from for me personally anywhere from down to seventeen hundred up to four thousand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but how much? But those they phones. S- those phones. Imagine what's going through my other suppliers' heads. Well, they know because those phones just got thrown in the woods. Mm-hmm. I ditched a lot of that stuff. There were still some at my house when the when I got when I got home. There were the agents were swarming around my house asking to go in. Anybody in the house? Are there any guns in the house? What's your name? I just said I'd like to speak to a lawyer. I'm sorry, I can't help you. I said, What's going on? I'm sorry, I can't help you. And how long did they try to break you for? Uh, probably an, probably an hour to. One to three hours. Yeah, they eventually got the search warrant in three hours, probably. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, how many how many pounds did they take off that trailer that day? There was only three hundred pounds on that trailer because we couldn't fill the whole load because back then, in the summertime, there was somewhat of a drought. The drought season, of course. Yeah. So back then, it was really there would be that drought time, which I don't think they have anymore. Mm-mm. But um, so they took three hundred pounds off the trailer. That's a federal mandatory minimum. So I think like five year minimum. Yeah. Right. I think it's like 220 is the, is the yeah, hundred kilos. Yeah. Right. So they take you to, they, did they find anything else in the house? Eventually they got in the house and stupid me. I had like 30 pounds in there, just like headweed. Really? And it, I didn't even smoke that much, but it was like that premium shit. You just throw in a freezer, mm-hmm. but 30 pounds of me is not a big deal, mm-hmm. but that was just like 30 pounds that I give. Like I had a few connects where small time guys that I give a pound of weed to, but they were just good people to know because they can get me front row tickets to any concert or they can right. get me into this club or the, anything I need VIP. Yeah. So I just give them a pound here and there. And like, I just had that in my personal residence. And I also had, there was like 1.5 million in there that I had on me for another load that I had coming an hour later. Mm. Okay. So now you're made, you got work and you got cash, yeah, which I'm is post. A, a t- okay. So the only th- thing I have going for me is they don't know who I am. Okay. So then how long do they uh, take them to figure out what happens well, I, next? I got, so I got cuffed up. They put me in jail, but I was bailed out three days later. Why, why did I get bailed? Because in my opinion, they didn't have a case on me. And number two, if I'm not going to work from that, it gives them a good opportunity to follow me around to see who I am. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as soon as I was bailed out, they had tails on me. Mm-hmm. Okay. So did your stepdad bail you out? Yeah. He put the house up and yeah, he was good about that. Very fast acting. I appreciate that. So then what happens next? How long after you're out on bail? I'm out on pre-trial release. I hire a very expensive legal team, Michael Kennedy out of Manhattan, New York. He'd done a lot of criminal stuff. He did the Timothy Leary, Leary LSD stuff case. He did, oh, wow. he did some mob stuff, the pizza connection down in yeah. Manhattan. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, he, uh, he was a heavy hitter. Um, hired him. And uh, by the time he kept juicing me for money in pretrial, by the time I, between I paying him, it was all wrapped in with him and my investigator and his paralegal. And I ended up spending 700 grand just in pretrial with him. Wow. Yeah. And, and how long was he knew he, he looked at me as a little small kid. Like Mm -hmm. he, this kid has no clothes. He'll pay anything for freedom. Yeah. Right. 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 
So he milked me good. But then almost two, two years, we kept the case kept getting pushed back because they had a really weak case because they searched my house illegally. Because keep in mind, I never unloaded weed from the trailer. Mm-hmm. So they went in my house. What's what's the reason for going? I only unloaded a dirt bike. So they had a weak case. But they dragged it out. And uh, eventually they rearrested me right before trial for laundering money to pay my legal fees. They, uh, wow. they accused, like that's allegedly laundering money because what happened is I had 400, 400 500 grand stashed at somebody's house to pay legal fees. He ended up drinking himself to death. His father came in, found him on the ground or something like that. And, uh, found half a million in the closet in hundreds, all sealed up, vacuum sealed. And I'm assuming, I don't know for sure that he probably thought it was a bank robbery of some sort, something like, why is there a half million in my yeah. dead son's house? Right. <laughs> so he recalled the police reported it. They came in, figured out that I was associated with them. Probably looked at his last phone call mm-hmm. to Eric Canori, and, uh, he set me up. He's like, Hey, I want to let you know my son died. Can you come to my house? So I showed up the next day and uh, he had a wire on. And I, but I didn't say anything. It's all in the book. You got to yeah. read the book to get mm-hmm. the details and mm-hmm. the mechanics of how I handled the situation. I didn't say anything incriminating. I was very selective. I just assumed at this point in my life, everybody's wearing a wire. Mm-hmm. Right. But they still scooped me up. They still scooped me up for uh, receiving 420 in a duffel bag. Right. And they found some checks, some blank checks. They found an address of a guy that was allegedly laundering money to pay my legal fees. They so, flipped so, him like an IHOP pa- pancake. So you were giving money to a guy who was writing the checks to the lawyer. Allegedly. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. So how long was the pretrial process up to this point? Like how long did uh, you do We were that? close to two years, 18 months, maybe. Wow. And were you working in no, that I was time? Done. Once, once I got pinched that first, that first indictment, I stopped working. I was out of the game cold turkey. Yeah. I mean, granted, I had just loose ends you have to clean up. You mm-hmm. have to meet people. Like, it was a big did, organization. Did you have to co- go collect? Like, did you have people that owed you? Yes. And, and what was collecting like when you were out on bail? I mean, you must have been paranoid. Like, yeah, well, I had people handle that for me, but it was, uh, there were a lot of, there were a few snowflakes, mm-hmm. right? People that just like, they flake out and I'll, I'll never forget. I there's, I don't want to get into that. Shout, shout out who owes you money. Give shout them, give them out the snowflakes. Thank right God. Now. Mom told me not to pick up the Glock. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, I don't know what that means, but you know, don't Well, the think about it. You owe somebody big dollars. There's certain people you don't cross and you're end up, you're going to be six feet under. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's very, listen, it's think about it. Think about it. Somebody owes you, a lot of money. My game How much worked, were you owed when you got well, pinched? Well, just on the street at, at that day when I got pinched, I had about two million out. Two million out on credit. And how yeah. many different states? Could you uh, do you remember? The farthest down that I recall was the Carolinas. Now were you eventually how much of that did you get back during the pretrial? I, re- I, I received about I got about eighty five percent of my money back. Okay, good. So you that's were a good profit. number, right? Yeah, that's a good number for a yeah. guy who's basically made. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because they hear that you get pinched and they're like, oh, I'm keeping the money. This guy's wild. No, but that that tainted me because I me in the underworld, I just I don't stop. I, I like I was in a position the, the, okay, we got pinched. Business goes on, you just need to switch shit up. You don't snowflake and disappear. Right. Now you do, just get smarter about things. Did you have customers trying to get at you during pre-trial? Oh, of course, if people want to meet my connects, there's a lot of there's a lot of things going on in that situation. And Everybody has a different way of handling things and mm-hmm. how I handle it. I'm not going to talk about here, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of, there's a lot of different things that can get done during pretrial. 
In terms of what? Just however, how, just, however, how you have a multi-million dollar organization, where does mm-hmm. it go? Like, there's so many moving parts. There's loads being delivered. There's money mm-hmm. that's owed. There's people that need to feed their families. Can you tell us that on the Patreon? Get, get into some detail? Uh, uh, yeah, he'll tell us on the Patreon. Patreon.com slash The Connection. Here's show. the deal. Here's the deal. I, I, statue limitations are up. I don't break the law anymore. I don't even jaywalk. That's Tell us on the Patreon. Patreon.com right, slash The Patreon, we're going to tell you about... We'll talk a little bit about crime. Yeah. We're going to go into some crime. You yeah. know, we've been talking business up to this yeah, point. That's true. Okay. So you get pinched picking up 400 grand. Uh, so now is that, are they stacking those charges on top of the, the drug charge? They, they haven't, I still only have a one count indictment, which is pretty light, right? For right. considering I'm, uh, they really, if they really wanted to, I was being threatened with Rico charges. Right. Right. So, so you so you're being and that's because oh, they had so, a weak so, case. So yeah. So I'm arrested a second time. This time I'm thrown in jail with no bail. Wow. How how do they justify that? I'm a flight risk. Yeah. Like I'm a fa- I'm a, I, I'm I was getting ready for trial and I get scooped up with close to a half million in cash. Right. And you're already out on bail, so you're you're yeah you're double hot water. Yeah. So and they and that was the last chance to really squeeze me. And you know at my level, really, what they want is they want me to work for them. They want yeah. me to point them in the direction where there's more money. Now, did when you were in jail without bail, did they send agents down there to 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 try to get you to work for them? That's what they did with me. They sent a guy down like every week. Well, they no, but they they couldn't down. talk to me because once you request a lawyer, the agents can't talk to you anymore. Oh, so they have to go through my lawyer. That's news to me. Well, yeah, but did they did they go through your lawyer? Yeah, they, they went through my lawyer every week. It was like, yeah. hey, you know, he, he has a small window to cooperate. We're going to go after his family. Rico charges. This kid's never going to see the light of day. We haven't even done anything to him yet. Mm-hmm. So that was happening every single week. For and, to- and how close were you? You know, because when you're sitting in jail, you know how it is. I mean, it's misery. How how What percentage of you thought, yeah, let me just get out of here and go work for them? Oh, zero, zero, bro, bro. I would, I would, my, my game, my, my loyalty, my respect for the game. Just like you go down with the shit, man. Mm-hmm. You have to, okay. Let me preface that with this. My childhood was so tough. There was a point I stood at the edge and I was ready to jump. So I wasn't really afraid of death ever. Right. So I, it, I would have hung myself up in my cell before I went out and worked for them. Mm-hmm. No doubt, bro. I, 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 at the young, when I was a young kid, life was so tough that I didn't want to go home. I didn't have any money. And I stood at that edge and I cried. It's in the book, bro. I just, edge I, of what, what at the edge of what it's called dead man's drop. It was a 180 foot drop near a local town reservoir in my, in my town where I grew up. Wow. So probably a few people hurled themselves. Off I, I had heard stories from friends. And at that point you didn't have the internet really, but they had said, that's why they called it dead man's drop. Mm-hmm. People had died when I was young yeah. before I knew. Wow. So I'll respect. I mean, most people aren't like you, you know, most people would have taken the deal or would have taken, you know, uh, uh, I, I, I've actually took a deal. No, I, I meant most people would have broken and, and, you know, worn a wire or gone out and, you know, pointed oh, the finger. I couldn't, I couldn't, I would, I would, I would kill myself before I did that. Like that's what I would have done. I, I, so, uh, how long did you, now that you're, in jail without a bail, how long did you actually sit in there before the case, uh, before you took the deal, before they actually sentenced you and shipped you off? Yeah. So I, I, they, they, they wore me down for about four months. Yeah. 
you know, no going outside. You sit in your little cell. Where are you? What? It's a little, it's called uh, Rensselaer County Jail in Albany. Uh, there's no going outside. There's not a yard, mm-hmm. right? You just stay in that yeah. concrete with the TVs blaring and you sit in your cell and eat shitty food. And uh, luckily I had a good girlfriend at the time that was a trooper. Like even the feds, they came to her house, tried to crack her. She didn't say a word, like scared. Of, she was Ukrainian, tough. Yeah. You know, so she just was, she was very calm centered and there's no flipping out. Mm-mm. She was my, she was my just biggest supporter while I was in there. Wow. And, uh, what did they originally offer you? What was the there first was, there offer? Were, offer? There, there was no, you know, I, I heard down the road that they actually, before I got arrested the second time, they came to my lawyers and said, Hey, if you, if your guy gives us, pays up 2 million and does two years, it'll be done. And I, he, my lawyer never relayed that back to me. That's wild. You could. I mean, you didn't get a long enough sentence, but you, that could have been used to win on appeal. So that's insufficient counsel. Yeah. So, so they, you know, why they didn't tell me because I think they wanted to be heroes and beat the case because they knew the feds had such a weak case. Mm-hmm. Or they, they wanted you to keep paying them. Well, they that possibly too, but they had such the feds did have a really weak case mm-hmm. at that time. That's mm-hmm. why they made us the offer. Yeah. So they probably didn't want to tell me that. They so, probably they, my my lawyers probably didn't think I had two million either because I played broke to them too. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. So even though you're giving them almost a million bucks. Yeah. Um. Uh, what now that after the second arrest. What was the offer? What was the government's well, offer? Well, the first offer was to work for them. Okay. That, that was going on for months. And then eventually it was like, if your client gives us the rest of his money, we know he's a good kid. We'll let him get on with his life. What? So they were, oh, they were just going to let you pay listen, to get listen, out. Listen, there were a lot of mind Whoa. games. Bro, 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 listen, there were a lot of Whoa. mind games. There were mind games I had to play on the inmate phone line to get that deal. I had to carry, listen, what they want to do is wear you down. Yeah. I had to talk on the phone with my girlfriend and get her to say, I told her to say on the phone, baby, don't worry about it. I'll stay here for years, however long it takes for you to win. So by having, by putting on the front that me and my girlfriend were okay with me sitting in prison for a long time. Yeah. When they're listening to these recordings, they're like, we're not going to be able to get this dude. Right. So they eventually, that's my opinion. I don't know if that for fact, if that's the play, but they eventually came to me with, uh, give us the rest of your money. Granted, they still wanted to know about my organization, but I wasn't going to go working for them. Mm-hmm. Basically, my lawyer is like, listen, tell them what you did, but you don't have to tell everything and you just can't lie. Mm. So eventually I was like, hey, can we get this in writing? He's like, no, you can't buy your way out of jail. He's like, but it'll be a form of cooperation by giving up the funds. Right. Right. So they come to you and did you tell them where all your money was? Day one, they said, Hey, we want eight to 9 million. I broke them down to like 5.2 million. <laughs> so you're negotiating with the yeah, government I'm negotiating with the on prosecutor. the drug money that you have to the give prosecutor. up. Yeah. We <laughs> sat down. I was like, I was like, 5.25. That's me and my lawyer negotiated. And so are you across the table? We're at like a table. In the I'm, sh- I'm shackled up. Yeah. We're at a table, prosecutor, two DA agents, my counsel, me, my jumpsuit on everybody else's. Wow. So the U S attorney. Close. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I'm sitting there and then we got the deal. I got him to 5.2. Okay. And so where is the cash? Well, part of the deal was beautiful. They already had 2.5 million of mine. That they'd see. So that from, was counted towards. So I only right. needed to come up with another 2.5. Yeah. Ish, give or take. 2. I'm 8. rounding out the yeah. numbers here. Uh, 
So after a couple of weeks, my lawyer drafts up the plea agreement. We do some editing. I'm like, listen, you know, I'm, I want to make sure they can't come back to me for any other charges if I pay this money. It's like a real estate contract. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so after the contract was drafted up properly and both sides accepted it, they came, picked me up in shackles. They go, all right, where are we going? I go, you're going to need a shovel. I go, we're going to dig up some gold. Wow. You rush up the highway, a fleet of agents, bro, ATF, DA, even some IRS, uh, AR-15s, mm -hmm. bulletproof vests. And I take them into upstate New York about an hour from the jail. And we actually go right behind my mom's house. And we dig up uh, 1.5 million in gold bars about three feet down. Pull those bars out of the earth, give them to them. And those bars are worth, between the cash that he had and the gold, I reached my mark. I was actually a little over the 5.2. And I think it was like, don't quote me on the exact numbers, but I paid them off what I owed. Did they, did they have to check the value? Because gold yeah, goes yeah, up and down. I, I actually told my lawyer that, I go, listen, it's the spot price of gold that day. Mm -hmm. So in, in the prison, every single day, I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal to see the spot price yeah. of gold, wondering what day they're going to let me out and what the price is going to be. Because there was this, I didn't know if I was going to make the full payment. Mm -hmm. If gold dipped, I wouldn't have been able to pay him out on right. that particular stash. Did you have another stash that you were ready were, to? Of course, of get course. Into? Yeah, but I didn't want to bring him to another stash because then I could have overpaid. Yeah, I, know, I had to overpay by a million. I wanted to like just hit the mark as right. close as I right. could. Right, right. Wow. So I hit the mark. Then they bring me back to jail, and I have to have a little sit down. It's called a proffer session. It's basically I'm not going to work undercover for you, but I'll tell you what I did. And and what but what's the time? What's the prison time you've agreed upon? There's no, you can't agree point. on prison time. The judge the judge is right. going to look at me and say, oh, he cooperated and paid this much right. money. He's a first time offender. It's right. just he's going to make his decision. Oh, I got you. Okay, I thought so. There's no because they didn't get you because 300 is a mandatory minimum, 300 pounds. So they're not. That's they, a five year minimum. But so yeah, yeah. In the plea agreement, it says I can do 60 months, but not over. Don't quote me on this, but I think it was over 120 months. But that's what I mean, though. So why why did the judge, if the judge has leeway, that means it's not a mandatory minimum. Well, so we're not even getting there yet, bro. I'm sitting down in the proffer session. I've only paid them 5.25. So when we sit down in the proffer session, I have to tell them what I do. So my lawyer goes, it's very important, Eric. Can't lie, and you don't have to tell them everything. So I spent a few hours with them and give them a bunch of old information, dead-ed leads, worthless stuff. But it's all true. Mm. But it's nothing of real value. You don't name names? Uh, well, they're all aliases. I don't know their real names. Mm -hmm. So there's no value in what I say. This is my process, and I need to give them some value to show the judge that I cooperated. So I had one thing I was holding on to, more gold. Think about it. All they want is more people from me to get more money. Mm -hmm. But if I can give them more of my own money, that's cooperation. Mm -hmm. So eventually they go at the end of the conversation, how much gold did you buy, Eric? I pause. I, go, I don't know a lot. Whole room starts shuffling papers and like every, the whole energy shifts. So they think there's more gold out there now, mm -hmm. which is what I want them to think. And, uh, Everybody was frustrated. The conversation ended. My, goal, my lawyer goes, this is enough for today. Brought me back to jail. Shack, sat in my cell. My lawyer's like, hey, hey, Eric calls me a couple days later. Eric, they think you have more gold and they want it. And you're not getting out until you pay it. What are you talking about? I, I paid my five mil deal. I, I told them what I did. The deal's done. 
So after three weeks, my lawyer was like, listen, they promise they're going to let you out of there. You can get on with your life. You're done. Just give them the rest of what you have. So three, three weeks later, we go in the pouring rain. They come pick me up and I go in shackles in upstate New York in a remote location in the woods. And I dig up six and a half million more of gold bars. Yep. How many gold bars is that? That oh must God. weigh. I, I can't remember. So much. It was enough where it took four guys to pull one of the chests out of the ground. There were two spots I took them to, but one of them had to weigh well over 220 pounds. Because at the time, I think there were about a hundred and something bars in there. There were coins too, but uh, there's a picture of it. There's a picture of it. So online. why would you? Why would you give them that tip? Because I wanted to cooperate, but you I, didn't I didn't want to cooperate against other people that mm -hmm. had money. Mm -hmm. So I might as well just cooperate against myself. Mm -hmm. Like that, that was, it. I wanted to leave the game with some honor. And I just, I, I was all done with the game first off. And I am done with the game. I just wanted to go out and I, I'm smart enough where I can make legitimate money. It might take a little time, but. Uh, so after they got all that gold, cause we need to wrap soon and go to the Patreon. They got uh, now almost $10 million worth of your money how did the prison time come into play? Cause they you said, know what, you know what? I still ended up doing time. That's what I mean. I got why? a sentence. I got a 30 month sentence. I, because <laughs> I don't know why. I think there was some legal case that preceded mine that stated that if you're considered a manager of a criminal organization, you have to do a mandatory minimum of 30 months. And I don't know all the legal jargon behind this, we still, we still reserved our right to make an appeal on one motion. Uh, you know, don't quote me on all this language. I don't know exactly how it works, but I lost that appeal. But yeah, I still did time. I still did time. I did a little less than two years, but whatever. That, that, was, a good, that was a good thing for me because that gave me time to really work on myself. Mm -hmm. So as much as it sucked healing, it was heart-wrenching. It's what needed to happen. Mm -hmm. So did you make out with any money? Do you have anything left when you came home? They allowed me to keep all my legitimate assets because I didn't commingle funds. Mm. So I had a lot of real estate, equities, bank accounts, and I they, that was all frozen when I first got pinched. Mm -hmm. But I my lawyer negotiated with me. Part of the deal was if I pay up the gold, I want my legal assets unfrozen. Wow! And they said, "Yeah, we'll take the gold." Scott yeah, they assuming I hit the mark that they wanted. They they unfroze stuff. Yeah, okay. they they said we're not a real estate holding company. So you had something waiting for you when you came out. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. That makes your time easier. Yeah, yeah. I had a little money and I had a nice girlfriend. So let's, okay, so she stayed with you, Ukrainian. Well, she didn't totally stay with me, but that's all right. <laughs> I, that's my fault too. I didn't, want, I didn't want a girlfriend while I was away because it makes time go slower. I wanted to isolate myself, focus on my reading, my books, my exercise, and just do my time alone. So very quickly, since then, what has the last uh, 10, 12 years looked like for you? Why are you just writing, oh, yeah, writing yeah. this book I, now? Honestly, this book, what took me a long time, it took me six years. I, I haven't had to work too hard because like I said, I had some savings, Yeah. but now I'm getting ready to grind again because I miss working. I like working. Mm -hmm. I like making shit happen. I like to create things. Mm -hmm. But the last 10 years have been reflective. I've had, a, I've gone through a few good girlfriends that have taught me a lot about life. A couple of Russians. No, time. I actually, no, I, I, no more Ukrainians. She was a great woman, but I have, I did date some, some overseas women that were good mm -hmm. women. I liked, I, I'm very fortunate that I had a wide variety of women that really turned me from a boy to a man. Mm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Somebody from the Eastern Bloc will do that. Yes, sir. Uh, you don't, I mean, you see, are you still a loner? Is that just going to be I, who I'm you kinda, are? You know, I kind of, I have friends. I know how to get along with people, but I like to roll alone because 
Easier to get stuff done. It's that easier way. to get shit done, mm-hmm. bro. I don't have to explain things. I don't mm-hmm. have dead weight. I don't have loose sense. Not that I even break the law. It's just in my blood mm-hmm. to like be in my mind and then go pl- and put the pieces together alone rather than explaining how I'm putting mm-hmm. the pieces together. Are you in therapy? Do you do anything like that? No, I, ayahuasca occasionally. Yeah. You know, you plug the book, you guys, you got to go check out pressure. Eric, Eric's memoir, Eric Hanori. They can go to Amazon and they can buy it off your website. Yeah, my website has a link right to Amazon. Right. You can get the ebook, paperback. Yeah. You can buy it at Barnes and Noble. You can order it. But Amazon's probably the best place, the quickest, the fastest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can't wait to get home and read so this. So listen, this book isn't just a book about crime, though. This is about love, acceptance. This is for soccer moms. We're gonna get into women, divorce, heartache, pain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because that's what life is, you know? The game is just like a reflection of what is going on inside. You know what I mean? That's why I wanted to know about your childhood. That's what's so interesting. It's like, okay, this is what really turned you into the the businessman that you became and that you are still, you know? Um, so, well, Eric, I mean, what a great interview. Uh, I really appreciate you coming out here to LA. Go check out his book. Do you have a YouTube channel? I don't, I have a or Instagram old, or anything like uh, that. Instagram, Eric Canori. You okay. can Google me. I'm on okay. Instagram, cool. Eric Canori, C-A-N-O-R-I. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Go check him out and, uh, and jump over to the Patreon, patreon.com slash the connect show. We're going to get a few more details over there that we didn't get in this interview. Uh, but, but killer time with you, brother. Thanks for coming out. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Johnny. I appreciate having me out here. You got it.